Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage 
all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, guys, and this week we have Chad Richard on from Florida. Chad, how you doing? Doing good this afternoon. How are you, Jacob? I'm doing excellent. I, again, I appreciate your time coming on today to you know make this episode happen. And I know it's going to be one that a lot of people are going to be excited about with uh, habitat management along with food plot management. But before we jump into all that, Chad, give us a little more background about yourself and then also some of your credentials so people can really understand you and your, some of your ideas when it comes to these topics. Sure. So uh, I have a degree in soil and water science and natural resource management from the University of Florida. I have been doing food plotting for the past 14 years between Georgia and Florida. Um, So most of my knowledge, or actually all of my knowledge, is going to be based on South Georgia and North Florida. So before I want to preface it for that, there's a lot of other regions in your reach that extend well beyond South Georgia and and, uh, North Florida. So I'm going to be talking more specifically about the Southeast Coastal Plain. Um, I work for a living as a uh, senior environmental uh, scientist for a private design engineering firm. And I'm a natural resource manager for a 2,700-acre track of property that is the Keystone Heights Airport. Um, So I have a kind of wide, diverse background, and I'd like to think that I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. Yeah, but see, at least you have a really good platform to be able to kind of talk about what's worked for you, what hasn't worked for you, especially in those locations, and what maybe we can transfer around the southeast that we could try out in our areas. But let's jump right into it, Chad. You know, one thing I, I want to talk about right now with it being, you know, middle of summer, uh, you know, you know, early July right now, you know, what habitat uh in food plot management can be done at this time of the year with season you know coming around within a couple of months i mean what can we be doing right now yeah i would say if you don't have a summer food plot that you're you're wasting your effort um i have a a year-round food plot at the the property that i lease and manage um for the most part there are only two months out of the year during the growing season that there isn't food on the ground um, a lot of folks seem to take the approach that they only have a food plot during the fall, and, and I generally disagree with that because for fecundity purposes, for whitetail and turkeys and all, all wildlife, um, the spring season is when there is a, the highest demand for food, and I would also consider coming right out of early winter. There really isn't much forage, so I take the approach of a year-round food plot uh, management plan. And that's very good. I mean, that's being a very responsible uh, manager is because of that. You know, a lot of people think that food plots are only to be able to kill deer off of them. And people only want to, you know, present food plots to the wildlife just in the fall season and then kind of forget about the rest of the year. And you doing a year-round, you know, source of food for them is going to be perfect for them, not only to keep animals, you know, deer, turkey, everything on your property, but also just be able to get them through the stressful parts of the year when there is a lack of food. But let's jump straight into food plots. That's one thing I'm very interested in. I've had experience uh, helping an uncle of mine manage uh, our family farm uh, for the last few years on just food plot management. And, you know, he's 
a stickler for everything from soil tests, make sure we're fertilizing correctly, everything like that. You know, don't, uh, he, he, we're trying to get a, a no-till drill right now just so we don't have to worry about the erosion from uh, tilling. But, you know, one thing I want to talk to you about is, you know, summer food plots, which I know it's a little past that, but we're looking towards the fall right now. Uh, when, when it comes to fall food plots, you know, first of all, what's the importance of food plots for just like a deer's herd's health in general? Yeah, well, obviously there's a lot of food in the woods. Um, some areas have a higher preponderance of, of natural food sources than others. Um, the current food plot that I'm running right now for the summer food plot is okra, beets, radishes, oats, and a variety of millet, which is a brown top. Okay, okay. And this kind of opens up a question Andrew had, which again, you know, sorry guys, Andrew can't make it, uh, but he's busy this weekend. Um, but a question Andrew had was, uh, you know, a lot of guys, especially in the southeast, uh, and I'm sure it's like this everywhere, but you see it, you know, a lot in the southeast, especially on uh, different forums and Facebook pages about, you know, guys want to plant something cheap. And, you know, they don't want to put a lot of time into their food plots. And you see a lot of guys and hear a lot of guys talking about planting rye grass. Can, can you explain to us the difference between rye grass and actual rye and the benefits or the disadvantage of rye grass compared to, you know, normal rye? I think rye grass is a very viable late fall plot. You can easily top seed it without uh, a whole lot of effort. There are two different kinds of rye that are commonly used, um, the seed rye or, or the grass rye, and then there's the, the variety of rye grasses that actually produce a seed, so they have a seed head. Um, I like rye grass for overseeding in approximately late October, and what I like about that is it, it doesn't require a lot of effort. And you don't have to disc or till. Till you can commonly just top dress it, and that rye will germinate. I don't remember the pounds per acre that we commonly use, but I'm going to say it's right around seven to ten if you're overseeding. And uh, one benefit of ryegrass, I will say, in the gray light, you can see the silhouette of deer over green grass much easier than you can over uh, kind of that gray or brown background. So they, they the deer. And in, in whatever game, they stand out a lot more, especially for that early morning gray light. Um, that silhouette is very apparent, so you can get a better view shed for what's going on um, right before shooting light. And that's one thing that you definitely notice. You know, we've planted it in the past. We've used it uh, along. You know, you might see some hunting TV shows that are based out of the south, and you you can see that actually on television. Uh, you know, them doing those hunts and like that. Like you said, you know, that very light colored green grass. You know, early morning, late in the afternoon, late in the evening, or going into the evening. You know, you can see the outline of the deer. Um, but also, you know, it being very a simple way to grow something. You know, it's a very simple plant. Uh, it doesn't take a whole bunch to really get to germinate. Uh, is that something for like a beginner? Like if you're looking at somebody, maybe someone just got picked up some property this fall, whether it's a lease, they got permission to hunt, and they want to put it in a little food plot. Would would rice would be something that you would recommend for that, or would you recommend something else that they would uh, ought to be planning in the next month or two to be able, uh, you know, have a um, you know more nourishment for the full year uh, throughout season? Yeah, I would say if you want to start with something, crimson clover is a good approach. Um, I, I will always advocate for rye. I give an example of I spilled a bag of rye in the back of my truck bed, and it germinated in the back of my truck. <laughs> so in between the mat and, and where the bed liner was, it had enough moisture and enough you know leaves and debris in the back that I had a luscious, 
green strips of ryegrass. So if I can grow gr- ryegrass in the back of my truck bed, you can grow it in the ground. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. That's perfect. Uh, and that brought up another topic or another um, plant I'd like to maybe talk about a little bit is, is crimson uh, clover. And I know there's a couple different variants of clover. We've got white clover, crimson clover. And is there a third one or is it just those two? Uh, those are the two dominant clovers. There are several clover varieties. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a broad genus. And I invite you to go to uh, the Whitetail Institute actually has a really good uh, online uh, catalog of, of varieties of clover. And then, to be honest with you, I buy, I purchase a fair amount of seed off of Amazon. And especially if you shop in the off-season, you can get some pretty good deals on, uh, you know, five-pound packages or something. So if you want to experiment with something, you can shop Amazon. And what I commonly do is I identify several uh, varieties of food plot material that I want to purchase. I put them on my list, and then I watch them. And then when that price drops 20 or 30%, select and done. But the Whitetail Institute, I think, is probably one of the best uh, media packages and informational institutes, especially since they, they use a lot of research into their food plots. Okay, well that's that, well that's something good to know that someone be able to uh, have a little more background. They can look up some, you know, listeners can look up some of that information, kind of see for themselves. Uh, now about clover, uh, you know, we've on our properties we've been a huge proponents of clover. I don't know what it is, but that's one thing that we can plant no matter where it is. Uh, you know, as long as you have you know good soil. Um, it always seems to do good, and the deer and turkeys absolutely love it, at least in our area. And that's one thing uh, that I've noticed throughout the southeast. In certain regions of the southeast, deer will tend to like something over a little bit, like something over uh, more so than something else. Uh, I know places that you know they won't necessarily touch ryegrass all that much, and then other places they absolutely hammer it. Um, and then other stuff like that when it comes to, you know, radishes is kind of a big topic. I know guys, yeah. we planted them and deer won't touch them on our property, but you do go to other places in Alabama or in Georgia and they absolutely hammer them. Um, well, what species of radish did you plant? Do you recall? I can, I cannot recall at what all. Variety? Yeah, um, daikon is, is very common to plant mm-hmm. and more often than not, folks will plant daikon and what's, what's desirable What's desirable about daikon is that the deer will eat the tops of it, and then later in the season, as the daikon radishes get a little bit more uh, mature, they'll mm-hmm. actually dig up the daikons, and people don't even really know that the deer have forged on it because they have consumed the entire radish underneath the soil. Okay, okay. But this time of year, I'm using cherry bells and French icicle radishes. I mean, these are all things that I picked up for... You know, they may have been 7 or $8 a pound. And when you look at a pound of radish seed, that is a pretty good coverage because they are basically the size. Each seed is about the size of a pencil tip. So hmm. a pound of radishes go a long ways. Okay. Well, that's something, you know, I'd like to talk about. There's a couple different variants of uh, plot mixes that we could use that, you know, might be more successful than others or something that would at least be easy to try out. Uh, you know, sure. rad- radishes, especially up in the Midwest, seems like a very hot thing uh, you hear a lot about. Uh, another thing that I'd like to talk about is, you know, corn corn and soybeans. Uh, we've experienced uh, experimented with soybeans for a summer plot into a late winter food source and absolutely have had, had great success with it. Uh, deer absolutely hammer soybeans, especially in our location, our area, because it's not readily available. I mean, our property, uh, we've got a total of 15 acres of plantable acreage on, on our property uh, in the middle of, you know, pretty much a pine forest. 
uh, and, and you know, no one really around us really plants uh, soybeans. So the summertime, they are absolutely hammering them. And I know corn is one of those things for a late season food source. It does pretty well. Um, do you use anything like that in your regiment throughout the season, or have you had any experience with those two uh, those two uh, species? I've tried corn in the past, but their nitrogen demand is so high that I struggle with the cost of actually you know cultivating corn. Mm-hmm. We've used soybeans a few times. I will tell you that my my traditional approach to food plotting is more of a shotgun or a strip approach. Um, the way we cultivate food plots are it's not a monoculture. I'll often take a, a strip or a, an acreage and divide it into smaller sections. And I do a lot of screening food plots as well. So screening is where you have different heights of your target species. So hybrid pearl millet, for example, is one of my favorites. Hybrid pearl millet is a, is, is a you know, this is a five to seven foot tall stand whenever it's, it's fully mature. Hmm. The maturation, I want to say, is 45 to 60 days, depending on weather. And I'll plant a strip of that for a screen, and then I'll, I'll offset that by, you know, 6 to 12 foot. Basically, the tractor cultivator is going to be, you know, 6 foot wide. So we'll go back and forth, back and forth. And then that way, the deer and the turkey, but primary, I'm thinking about deer right now, they have cover to move back and forth into. So inside of your food plot, you're creating a, an area of, of bedding, and then they've got forage just on the other side. And so... Um, I think that that's been successful for me, and especially along a wooded edge, we'll do strips of strips of, of screen, mm-hmm. and then we'll do strips of low cover, and then the deer will move back and forth between that, and they feel, you know, obviously there's it's a hybrid pearl millet, I want to say a 17% digestible protein, it is a amazing plant if you take the time to cultivate it correctly. The other benefit of it, of it is that you can cut it uh, three occasions during the summertime, and it will still grow out a seed head. And then the seed head is very desirable for, for birds, too. So if you haven't explored the benefits of hybrid pearl millet, I invite you to take a little bit of time. And you're almost behind, unless you live in the extreme southeast, for planting it because it, it desires a very high heat climate. Um, so if you plant it in the next two or three weeks you might be successful for a fall crop okay perfect now you brought up another topic i'd like to touch on is this you know screen plots and the screening uh for entrance and exit routes for yourself or to make the deer more comfortable going in and out one uh plant i've heard a lot about for doing that is egyptian wheat uh, just because how tall it grows uh is that something you've ever had any experience with at all I don't like Egyptian wheat for my particular scenario because where I live in Northeast Florida, um, the hybrid pearl millet tends to perform better. Mm -hmm. However, I would say that Egyptian wheat accomplishes the same thing and it probably is more desirable for other areas. But the hybrid pearl millet is just hard to beat for the extreme heat tolerance in uh, Northeast Florida. Okay. And, you know, while we're talking about food plots right now, another thing I'd like to talk about with food plots is planting a plot that could be both for deer along with doves if you're a big dove hunter um you know we've had success with sorghum and soybean or or sorghum and sunflowers a lot and the deer like both of them uh do you do any kind of plots like that on your properties uh that you do something for a little bit of bird hunting as well yes um brown top millet is an amazing uh product and the same with dove prozo and what i like about prozo is it's a low 
It's a low-growing crop, so it tends to be less than a foot tall. Mm-hmm. It's very dense. Um, it, it prevents a lot of erodibility of soil, especially if you're on a slope. And the cost benefit is pretty high. So in addition to dove and turkey, um, deer will forage on it as well. And I've had a lot of success with with uh, dove prozo and brown top millet. Okay, perfect. Uh, and that's that's one thing that you know a lot of us in the, a lot of us in the south are you know always seems like dove season is always kind of a big thing. At least it, it is in Alabama and Arkansas uh, where I grew up. Um, it just seems like that first opening week in a dove season, which is normally like in September, people are, you know, going crazy for it. And they're, you know, they already have some kind of plot put in for it. Um, and that's something good to kind of know about. Now, you know, for something else, you know, when it comes to soil testing, I know this is important. Uh, and some people will overlook it and still have somewhat success. And they might think that soil testing is a waste of time or maybe a waste of, you know, five, ten dollars uh, to be able to do it. But what is the importance of soil testing, especially if you're on a property you've never done it before and you're trying to get the most amount uh, of forage out of your uh, your crop? Yeah. So if you're not spending that five to ten dollars on a soil test, I, I think you're wasting your time food plotting alone. That is the fundamental practice for everyone that it should be is uh, taking the soil test and, and working with your local land grant university and and getting your getting your results uh interpreting your results and if you have a hard time interpreting what the results are back from the soil test then then call your your land grant extension agent have them work you through it um there's there's a multitude of resources out there to help folks um interpret what they need to be doing and a soil test to me is the starting point for everything and the other thing is is you have to test at least once a year in order to understand how you have whatever soil amendments you may have done, well, how has that affected the soil, especially when it comes down to acidity? So soil has the ability for, has a reserve acidity. So even though you may have applied lime at a certain rate, that doesn't mean that the soil hasn't adapted to that. Um, and, and then you may think that you've got it down to, you know, six pH. Well, in all reality, it might be seven. So that could affect, which is a great pH to be at, of course, but if certain crops for food plots want to be at a at a certain targeted ph you want to be aware of that okay and i think that is very important because i've seen i've seen on both sides i've seen uh people that have not used it and had a little success uh you know mostly with either like rye or maybe a little bit of clover but it's not nearly as thick and lush and doesn't really grow to its full potential uh as you would if you able to do a soil test and really take care of everything uh in that aspect um now, when it comes to some of these plots that you're running, uh, do you use or uh, implement electric fences at all uh, to kind of cage off some of it uh, for either later on in the season or just to kind of give you a little more a test idea of what they're actually hammering on? Yeah, we, uh, so we do use excluder devices, which we don't use electric fences. We basically just wrap wrap wire around a, a three by three square roughly mm-hmm. and that tells us how much forage we're we're dealing with so if they're just if there's nothing left and then inside your cage is four feet tall um you have a pretty strong indication that the demand for forage is extremely high in that area um and and what else is interesting about that too is is at some point in time the the wildlife may leave your food plot i mean whatever's going on in your food plot they're not really interested in it and uh then you come back you know a week later and it's it's forged down to the ground it's grubbed out and when you look at that exclusion area that that small fenced area 
you'll see, wow, well, they couldn't get to that. And uh, look at the amount of, of forage that's available there. So obviously um, there's a high demand for, for nutrients in this area and the deer are tearing it up. Now, using those exclusive, uh, exclusion cages, we've done the same thing on our properties as well. Um, is that something, along with running trail cameras, you get an idea of how many deer you have on the property and how many you might need to try to harvest for that year uh, when it comes to this, your deer management uh, regiment? Yeah, I would say that I focus more on trail cameras and less on, on deer exclusion areas. I mean, that just may tell you that hey, it's a hard year. Or it's a really good year for fecundity and, and there, there are a lot of deer that have been attracted to your area, but I do use, uh, I have used trail cameras for about nine years now. I have a, a trail cam addiction, but the trail <laughs> cam addic- addiction is really not focused on horns. It's more focused on behaviors and it's focused on how successful have the does been in, in producing fawns. Um, and that's what I, I tend to focus on much more than, hey, I've got an eight-point or a nine-point crab, crab claw. I need to get after him. Yeah, and that's one thing that's huge that a lot of people don't understand is is fawn recruitment is absolutely huge. Uh, you know, to be able to have a good habitat, which is, you know, get into the second part of this uh, this interview, you know, you know, habitat is huge on having good fawn recruitment because if you don't have good uh, fawning cover, your coyotes and your predators are going to wipe them out. Uh, and that's going to be something that's, you know, you might have the greatest food plots in the world, but if you don't have good, uh, you know, habitat uh, on the rest of your property, you're not going to be able to have a very good fawn recruitment and uh, your population is going to suffer because of that. But, uh, you know, back into this question again, just the whole topic of, you know, food plots. You know, one thing I've heard in the past, and maybe you can answer for me or not, uh, is you know the topic of shady area food plots or like shaded cover areas. Maybe it's inside of a tree line or just someplace that really doesn't get a lot of sunlight. Uh, is there any certain grain or anything that you'd like to use in an area like that without having to open up the uh, canopy cover to allow more light in? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a particular area that I've food plotted for the last four years that is um – that I wouldn't say is, is completely shaded, but it's very filtered. Mm-hmm. So we have filtered sun, and um, in about two months, we'll plant turnip greens and collard greens in that particular area. And that's a little bit early for turnips and collards, but because you have filtered sunlight, it tends to be very desirable. And the other benefit in, in this, uh, most of my food plots are actually gardens. So I plant carrots, I plant turnips, I plant radishes, I plant um, uh, beets. I mean, there's no shortage of just general garden for squash. I plant a squash, cabbage, kale, um, everything in between. Because when you look at the nutrition of most garden variety seeds, you'll see that not only is it beneficial to wildlife, but it's beneficial for you to eat. So I've never, for the most part, more often than not, what I plant, I actually harvest as well. And it might just be a five-gallon bucket full of carrots. But if I'm going to take the time to food plot and, and go into it, I might as well benefit the family from it as well. So I can't tell you how many food plots that we've eaten out of over the last 10 years. Well, speak about that. When we were at Perdido uh, Bay a couple weeks ago, didn't you have some pickled uh, radishes you brought down that actually came out of one of your plots? Was that correct? Yeah, and in addition to that, I, I we took some to rendezvous uh, in in May. So we took pickled radishes as part of the uh, Camp Chef cook-off, and those were part of our, our plating for the uh, for the competition. So yeah, I mean it's 
it's very uncommon for me not to have some kind of harvest from our food plot. And I always look at it as a garden for, for my for my family, for my friends, uh, for those that I share the lease with and with the wildlife. And, you know, if you take 5% out of your food plot, I mean, big deal. So I've kind of transitioned. We planted watermelons, cantaloupe, uh, summer squash, um, everything in between. Sweet potatoes we've done on several occasions. Um, I just don't. I've seen deer ravage large-scale gardens, um, and they're in there because it's good food. And I see no reason that I can't take a small amount of out of the, the food plot and, and leverage some of the resources that I put into to gardening, basically, and uh, appreciate it myself. Okay, very nice. I know we've done it in the past. Uh, if we've planted corn, we've gone out and picked corn before. Uh, and then also, um, uh, uncle of mine, he planted beans one time and we went out and picked some beans. Um, but you know, back into the topic of just, you know, food plots, you know, one thing that's kind of been common lately is, or, you know, people are talking about like, quote unquote, throw and grow seed plots and stuff like that. Um, I've used a name, a, a brand name company's seed mix uh that may or may not be roughly that same name and right. never really had a bunch of success with it and if you look at it it's got a lot of it's very little actual uh grains like anything five, going into it five, it's like five percent of what you want and and 90 percent of ryegrass and five percent inert materials i mean there, there's a place for those bags of a food plot seed, but I, I would say when you start looking at what you're purchasing and you look at your purchasing power, you can take that same money and buy a 50 pound bag of ryegrass seed and then spend 30 or $40 on, on real seed, in my opinion, mm-hmm. and, and be much better off. So throw and grow, you know, unless you're having a good interaction between the soil surface and below surface, I mean, most seeds need to be planted a quarter inch to three quarter inch below the soil surface. The the only the only real throw and grow seed that I've had valuable experience with is ryegrass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so. I I can I can agree with that. I've I've been in the situation where I've gone from I've experienced of using you know a full enclosed you know ninety horsepower tractor all the way down to you know raking out a food plot and using a hand tiller. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I understand the whole you know avenue of what someone can use in areas where, that you know maybe you can't get a, a full size tractor in there, maybe you can't even get an ATV in there. Um, and I understand that, but the thing is, I think stuff like that might make people not necessarily lazy, but they don't they think they can just kind of rake out a little area and throw that stuff down and it's going to work. And it may a little bit, but it might not be as good as, you know, what they're really anticipating. Um, but for someone that's doing a real small plot, you know, these, you know, hidey hole plots, these kill plots, whatever you want to talk about, especially for, you know, archery season, uh, you know, trying to get in, you know, kind of between your main food source and the bedding areas. Is that something you do much of at all uh, with your experience or what's your experience on doing like those smaller plots like that? I really like strip plots. So you drop the disc lightly and you disc up an area that might only be, you know, 60 feet long and it's six foot wide. Mm -hmm. And then you you, you plant that. And then you you move hundreds of yards and you drop the disc again and you you do it all over again. I have used a no-till before, but I don't have access to one right now. So unfortunately, we do have to do a little bit of soil disturbance for the interaction between the seed, and then we follow behind with a, a traditional drag. Mm-hmm. Um, I 
my preference has always been diversifying the seed and diversifying the locations of food plots. And that, that sets up a lot of different things, right? Your wind direction, it sets up your different egotonal edges. So focusing on a two-acre food plot, that wouldn't be my preference. My preference would be to break that two acres across a 1,000 acres and have several different strips that you can manage with different uh, cultivating different uh, plants and having a, a variety of different locations across your tract. And another thing that kind of came up to my, I guess, um, thought right now about that, you know, spreading out that two acres over a much larger area, it, with your, you know, professional opinion, and this is just me thinking, would that help with uh, kind of keeping maybe diseases a little bit lower possibly, along with maybe predation? Yeah, um, I'm not sure about predation, but I would say that your shotgun approach is a better um it, it, it just allows you to evaluate things differently. And if for some reason that particular area, I mean, let's say you spent two, an entire weekend cultivating a two acre plot. Mm-hmm. And for some reason you did have a soil disease or you did have nematodes or you had some something that got in there that devastated that area. Mm-hmm. Well, your entire weekend is shot. And in addition to that, you're probably 30 days behind because by the time you get things back and going again and you, you've got got your area to the point where um, you have a, a valuable uh, food source um, you're done so why not spread it out a little bit more um, so I've never planted a large food plot most of them are probably a quarter acre at the most well that's something good I think because you know our basic I mean most of our listeners you know average guys in the southeast that you know, maybe or maybe not have the resources to be able to make, you know, huge food plots unless they already have land that, you know, they are maybe it was an old, you know, cattle farm or something like that. You have really large fields. Um, and I think that's something that's kind of across the board, you know, throughout the southeast is kind of pop is kind of popular is, you know, these smaller food plots. You know, everyone wants to have these giant food plots, you know, five, six, seven acres because they well, see. they make good pictures for Instagram, Exactly, right? but yep. Do, <laughs> but, do, do, but do they really help you in your in your wildlife management i i would question that i really do well in my opinion this this is me thinking here and with my personal experience i'd rather have five to seven you know quarter acre plots than have one you know five you know three or four four three or four acre uh one plot like major plot one reason why is because you can hunt those other plots a little bit more if you're you know you like hunting food plots you know hunting those food sources uh, especially on different wind directions. If you have one big area, I mean, you're kind of you're kind of stuck with it. And if you blow some deer out of there a couple different times, they're going to get educated, especially those big old does and uh, th- those more mature bucks, and uh, it's going to be a little harder to hunt. But like you said, if you diversify and really do a lot of these smaller plots, you know, say you, you blow deer out of one of them, no big deal, go over to one of the other, you know, five, six, seven, eight, ten, however many you have, and, uh, you know, hunt those, and you should be able to do it a little bit better. Plus, I like the idea of doing a bunch of small plots like that because you can kind of target where those deer are, uh, especially early in the day. If you put a bunch of them all across the landscape, you know, sooner or later you're going to find out where those deer are coming from and where they're hitting them the first, what plots they're hitting first before they move to anything else. Um, yeah, and the other thing is, is like let's say you're hunting an, a, a, a typical pine plantation. Like you're, you're hunting private land, right? Mm-hmm. So you know you have logging roads. Those roads, you don't really want to till up the logging roads, but there's a little bit of space. Let's say there's four foot of space on the side of the logging roads that won't, won't interrupt um, the logging practices. You can strip plant that all day long, 
even if it's just a four foot disc behind a four wheeler, I mean, you can go out there and, and drop a drop a disc behind a four wheeler and and scratch up lightly, scratch up a little bit of ground, and uh, plant something there and, and test it, see what the results are. Maybe that particular seed isn't what that area desires, but you haven't blown out a three or four acre food plot. And I see guys on uh, several forums that that are very successful with large scale food plots, and I applaud them. I, I have tractors, I have access to tractors, we've got friends with tractors, we've got all the equipment that we generally need, but, you know, I don't have boom sprayers, we don't have these large-scale pieces of equipment, we've got simple farm equipment, you know, a 93-horse tractor, a 50-horse tractor, and uh, and we, we just don't invest a whole lot of money in large-scale equipment because our more important goal is to spread out our resources. The other thing I'll say about that is, why don't you want the? Why wouldn't you want the deer moving across a large tract of property? Why do you want to suck them all into one area? And when you start thinking about the potential of CWD, mm-hmm. I think we all, as land managers or as uh, stewards of the land, um, we don't want to aggregate deer to one particular spot. We should want to keep them kind of spread out a little bit. Exactly, and again risk that limit or risk that you know possibility for you know disease to be able to spread uh, especially very quickly in your deer herd but you know a part of this uh topic along with the next topic which is going to be habitat management i want to talk to you about is you know if someone wants to go in and you know actually do maybe a little bit of timber harvest to maybe open up the landscape to add a plot i mean would you recommend doing you know trying to limit it to maybe a quarter acre something small like that to kind of put into that landscape uh, one reason, I guess, because you'd have less uh, logistics on, you know, you know, clearing out a big area and then also maybe a little bit easier to manage. Yeah, when you talk, you start talking about thinning and logging, um, it's, it's pretty tough. I mean, I've, I've managed some logging contracts and the aftermath of logging for someone that's not accustomed to it is pretty tough for a lot of people to, to stomach. Um, logging ramps, if they're cleaned up correctly, if they're raked afterwards, they can become great areas for food plots. However, in most uh, private logging industries, ramps tend to be an area for waste. So unless you have the ability to burn the uh, the trimmings, I mean the tops of trees, mm-hmm. everything that comes with it, all the bark, everything else, and then rake it, it, it it's not going to be very effective. Um, it just depends on the property. Uh, for industrial pine plantations, even if you do a, a pretty significant thinning e- effort and get it down to you know 60 to 90 basal area, the undergrowth is going to be challenging to do. So I would I would rather focus on if you have the opportunity to do that. If you know you're not going to get back into that area after the logging effort or thinning effort, well, food plot the the logging roads food plot the trail roads Mm -hmm. because it doesn't matter what condition they're in for the next several years take advantage of that yeah very true and that's something i you know i know we've had uh, me and my family we've done in the past and had success on especially on some of these different leases we've had uh where maybe uh either the the timber the pines themselves are either too young uh to be able to go in and really do much with uh and you know planting some of those roads are some of the best ways to be able to get in and out and uh, be able to hunt that area but you know jump into this next topic of just habitat management you know with it being you know you know very early in july is there anything we can be doing right now on our private property to be able you know manage that habitat for this fall uh for you know this overall um 
uh, increase uh, of either abundance in food sources or cover for the wildlife? Yeah, I would, I would say that if you have the ability to food plot it right now, um, prior to the season, so the season for, so archery season opens in Florida September 19th. So if you want to have a promising food plot for September 19th, you probably need to start managing your property now. Um, if you have the ability to do some small scale burning or contract burning, uh, if it's not if it's not by yourself, there's 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 regulations in each state that come to prescribe burning. So I don't want to get into that because all I can speak for is Florida. But you know, private land burning is a lot different than public land burning. Um, but if you want to create some ESH, you know, some early successional habitat, then now's the time to get after it. And in addition to food plotting, uh, you know, thinning is a great option. If you're looking at a piece of property as merchantable timber, you can thin it down. If it, if it can, if it if it's profitable, then I would suggest doing that. Bring it down to a pretty good basal level, and then uh, see what the results are. Now, one thing you've mentioned a couple times on here, which I'd like for you to explain, just for firstly for my knowledge and along with our listeners, can you explain basal? Uh, what what do you say? It was basal basal area yes would you explain that to us real quick i'll do my best um so when you scan the landscape mm-hmm. and you look at the amount of trees per acre it's not just how many trees per acre there are it's the amount of basal area that they occupy so think about the base of a tree mm-hmm. and how much volume that that occupies um you know, when you start off with a plantation, it's usually 643 trees to the acre, and then they grow and they get bigger. And then usually after 10 to 12 years, you go through a thinning process. You do a fifth row or a fourth row logger select. Um, so that takes out every fourth or fifth row. And then you'll often after that, five years later, you'll trim it down again and do another thinning event. And then at maturation for the most part in the south at 20 to 23 years you'll do a clear cut and start all over again well that's industrial pine plantation that that doesn't mean that that's how everyone deals with their own property for for pine production but basal area basically comes down to what volume of that base area of the tree does that acreage uh comprise of so the, the higher the basal area the more volume of trees you have, but it's also a function of the, the, the diameter breast height of the tree, too. Okay, okay, perfect. Now, when it comes to habitat for deer, what makes or breaks good habitat? Monoculture. Okay, and would you go, just go into that a little bit more of how maybe we can implement that on our properties to be able to you know, have the best well-rounded uh, habitat? Sure. Um, you know, obviously, if you're stuck with a I shouldn't say stuck. <laughs> if, if you're, if you are leasing or you're hunting an area that's dominated by pine, um, not that that's bad. I mean, there, there is some forage in pine, but it's hard to make a living eating pine needles. Um, unless you have a pretty strong undergrowth of gallberry, saw palmetto and so forth. Um, the, the understory, but those, those pine plantations that really have limited to no undergrowth, mid-story understory there's not really not that much forage there and so if i were evaluating a property i would definitely focus on the edges 
So the, the more diversity, the more ecological community that you have on a piece of property, the higher likelihood that you have of having forage during different times of the year. So gallberry is going to fire off in August. You know, it's going to bury out. And then in September, you have saw palmetto that's going to kick off their berries. Well, that's a great food source. Um, in early spring, in, in marshes and bottomlands and swamps, there's going to be a lot of forage that kicks off there. So the, the more ecological diversity that your property has, not only does it have a, a greater volume and diversity, density of forage, it also provides a different opportunity for you to hunt those edges. Because in my humble opinion, and based on a lot of research, a lot of evidence in the field, edges are where it all happens. Uh, and I 100% agree with you. And that's something we talked about last week is, you know, edges are key, especially uh, if, even if you're hunting public land, just be able to find the deer and figure out, you know, where they're bedding, where they're feeding at in their transition transitional areas. But, uh, and, you know, another topic I'd like to talk to you about is, you know, non-native vegetation uh, that kind of hinders or hurts deer habitat. One in particular, which I know there's mixed reviews on, is like, say, kudzu and then also like English ivy. Uh, and I know there's a lot of other ones we could talk about, but I know kudzu is very prominent in central Alabama where I hunted and I've seen deer eat it. I heard from what I've heard, I haven't done my research on it, that it has, you know, good protein, uh, characteristics for it, but it, it, the way it chokes out forests is, you know, that's, that cannot be healthy at all for, for habitat. Um, is there any way in your opinion to manage anything like that? Or is that kind of one of those things that is going to run rampant and there's not much you can do about it? I think that if you have an invasive exotics plant species on your property, you should do everything possible to eradicate it. Um, I I don't care if kudzu has 10% digestible protein. The last thing I want is for a property to be consumed by a non-native invasive exotic species that will do nothing but, but hinder the future development of that property. You know, I live in the, I live in a, a state that struggles with Asian, African, South American species, whether it be fish or wildlife or vegetation, and um, it, it's it's scary the amount of of habitat encroachment that happens from invasive exotics, and there are a lot of techniques out there to deal with invasive exotics, plants and animals. Um, so if you're if you're considering getting after some invasive exotics, I would suggest coordinating with your local uh, NRCS department, extension agents, whoever you can to, to try and, and, and garnish and leverage some resources to deal with those. Because everyone, I can't think of a single federal or state level agency that is advocating uh, cuts, for instance. Okay, yeah, very good. Uh, I mean, that's one thing we've noticed in our, in, you know, our family farm, uh, probably maybe 10% of it has kudzu on it, and we've tried to do what we can to keep it back. And it's really the problem is it's on the neighbor's property, and it kind of comes come, comes across. And it's amazing on how fast that stuff grows. I mean, you'll bush hog a trail, and I mean, a week later, you can't see the trail anymore. Uh, you know, dead of summer. I mean, it's unreal how fast it grows, and it's killed a lot of our trees. Um, but, you know, that was one thing I had on my mind. I know I've talked to other individuals, especially in the southeast, that has issue with kudzu. Um, but, you know, another topic I want to talk to you about, which you mentioned earlier, and we can, you know, talk about it however you want to, is just burning in general, prescribed burns. Uh, I know it's something that you do not need to be doing if you're just a novice at it. You know, you either need to be under the supervision of somebody that 
uh, is a professional has done it or, you know, what, however your state regulates it. But in your opinion, how does burning affect the habitat and the regrowth effect uh, from doing a prescribed burn? Yeah, so there are several communities in the southeast that are fire dependent. So without fire, they will never achieve their lifetime goals of being a great community or maintaining a great community. Longleaf pine is a great example. Longleaf pine savannas, uh, the return interval on fires tends to be three to five years, which uh, tends to be growing season burns. If you haven't seen a a great example of, the, of a longleaf pine savanna, you're missing out because it is extremely productive and the sand, sandhill communities as well. And what one of the great benefits of it is fire naturally creates a canvas that benefits all wildlife. But I hear a lot of negative connotations associated with fire. And I think that's because there are folks that that use fire correctly that and then there are folks and agencies that that may not have the resources to do it in in a in a good fashion and then you have the people that that really don't know much about fire they just burn things on their own property without thinking through the the adversity the potential adversity associated with it and they misuse it so i would akin it to food plot management if you don't really know what you're doing um, just like anything else, you're probably not taking full advantage of a fire resource. But I think that fire is imperative in the Southeast Coastal Plain. So the Southeast Coastal Plain, you know, runs throughout our region uh, up and, uh, you know, until it gets into the Appalachia. And for the most part, the vast majority of ecological communities are, are contingent on fire. Yeah, and I, from our experience on our uh, private farm, uh, we started checkerboarding uh, burn or doing checkerboarded burns on the property uh, about four years ago after we had a very large timber harvest come off the property where we cut roughly 70 percent 65 to 70 percent of the property it was all in planted pines that we had planted um, and did a timber harvest on it and you know a lot of people see you know clear cuts like oh this is going to ruin my deer hunting and you know that first year it was kind of rough because they cut it throughout the middle of season but that next year it was unreal we started burning uh the following uh, uh, february and we've kind of kept it under wraps and kind of rotate where we do our fires and it is unbelievable the fawning cover we've had that i mean the deer numbers have pretty much doubled on the property of how much deer we can hold on the property uh which then again implements uh, us trying to put in better food plots to be able to retain those deer but uh we absolutely love doing burns but it's one of those things that you definitely it takes it's a lot of time it's a lot of effort and you got to do it smart and you can't i mean you got to do your research when you're doing a fire because i mean that can get out of hand very quickly if you don't know what you're doing um so definitely that's something you need to do your research on but you know one of the things i like to well, talk hey let, let me let me add something okay fire is a fickle mistress <laughs> so yes it takes a lot of precaution mm-hmm. and and if, if done correctly and if it mimics the natural practices of that ecological community it will do nothing but benefit you However, there are a lot of fires that are conducted on private and public land that just get out of hand. Um, there are tracks that are burned extensively. There are top kills of canopy. There are things that happen that uh, that sometimes are out of outside of that that land manager's purview because Mother Nature intervenes. However, um, I think on a small scale, if folks can implement fire techniques 
to benefit wildlife habitat, they'll reap the rewards. Yeah, and I, I 100% agree. I mean, it's one of those things, there's a lot of mixed reviews on fire. I personally like it. I understand reasons for people not liking it, especially in the time of years that people or land managers might want to do a fire. Uh, you know, that could definitely hinder, you know, certain populations, whether maybe it's turkeys or this or that. Um, but, you know, if you do it the right time of the year, like, you know, personally, we love doing it, like, right at the end of deer season. Uh, you know, right. middle February, early February, it's absolutely perfect. Dorm, dormant season burns are easy to control. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of fuel. You can get things set up. Exactly. You can, and you have a better visual of everything that's going on uh, that time of the year. Uh, you know, cutting your fire breaks, you know, is very effective. And, you know, we've just had good success with that. You know, summer burns, stuff like that, you know, you start getting to, uh, you know, more controversy, I guess, uh, throughout the, the hunting public. Uh, but, you know, one other topic I'd like to talk to you about, and then uh, we'll wrap this up, is uh, which this kind of can go back towards almost food plots, is planting fruit trees. Uh, do you have any experience in planting fruit trees in a, either in an orchard style or just kind of sporadic throughout your landscape? Yeah, I do. Um, one of the leases that I've been involved in is, is a good friend of mine, and, and he has an orchard adjacent he has private property adjacent to one of our leases and i cannot tell you the amount of times i've gotten text pictures or phone calls from him saying listen we need to we really really need to focus on shooting more deer because my orchard has been pillaged last night and the amount (laughs) of damage done to these trees is amazing Mm. so i uh what I'll say is I, I think that um, the woods provide a fair amount of, of forage and I think fruit, apples. I mean, we have persim- wild persimmons down here. We have plums. We have salt palmetto berries. Um, Chickasaw plums are, are another great example. I'm trying to think of more. Uh, there are a handful of uplands, upland species, too, that produce a fruit. I have never personally planted fruit trees on a lease be- because there's always been a fair amount of, of fruit trees in the general area but um i know a lot of guys online seem to to do a lot of uh apples and pears and gosh cherries i think cherries is also another common plant too or fruit tree yeah i was gonna say on on our family farm i wouldn't really want to plant anything on a lease like that just because you know you never know at least you know the least we've been to be honest you don't really have a lot of stability with it and you don't really never know if they're going to sell it off from underneath you or this or that um but on our family farm we have two different areas where we planted one area actually there's three areas uh one area is all it's uh four or five uh pear trees which are now about 15 years old and they produce unbelievable amount of pears and deer hammer them uh and you do have to protect the trees i mean that's one thing you got to worry about you know we have a uh, uh metal uh what do you kind of like the um, fence like, yeah fence yeah yeah fence them off I mean so the deer don't you know first I'll rub on them I also try to like you know get up on the branches or anything and try to you know snap a branch off um, also we have apple trees on one side of the farm which I can't remember uh, what you know um, type of apples they were but first of all they're delicious I actually love them during uh, dove season but uh, the deer love them as well and then we have actually we planted we have natural uh, persimmons or native uh, persimmons on the property but we also have uh, we planted Japanese persimmons. Yeah. Uh, which produce a giant persimmon. I mean, the size of like a big tomato, 
and the deer absolutely love those. So it's just, again, something to add to your property, have a little bit more variety that, you know, we've seen success with it, but it's one of those long-term things. I mean, you know, if you, and you have, if you have a drought or something that can definitely wipe out your trees and, you know, also, you know, insects and other uh, diseases can wipe them out. So it's a long-term investment. You got to put in the time for it and see it and hopefully it, uh, it pays off in the future. Um, but anyways, Chad, I, I appreciate you coming on, man. I know we went a little bit past your time frame for you know what we were kind of shooting for, but absolutely had a blast talking to you. I think everyone got a lot out of it, especially everything about doing the food plots. Uh, it's really opened up my eyes of you know this year I won't have any uh, private land uh, that I can necessarily manage uh, up here in Tennessee, but definitely looking at the next couple of years, uh, being able to implement this up here. I'm extremely excited about that, but I appreciate you coming on, Chad, uh, making some time for us, and uh, I hope you have an awesome rest of the year, man. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to share, and, and perhaps some of this is um, useful, and perhaps some of it folks already know. So I'm just kind of reinforcing some, some fundamental basics in uh, food plot management and wildlife management. Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, We talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you, you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it. You're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no brainer. You got to be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.